Uh, yeah, reading from Second Chronicles chapter 7 from verse 11. And we read that when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Thank God for his word to us today. Now I'm sure that, that many of us here this morning have probably heard of the, uh, the occasion, the famous occasion in the early 20th century when the Times newspaper posed a question to their leadership and waited for their replies. And, and the, the question was this, what's wrong with the world today? And I'm sure that there were many long and learned answers to this question, but the one that's best remembered is that which was given by the famous G.K. Chesterton. And this was his reply. Dear Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Well, Chesterton was certainly right at the individual level in the sin Our choice to sin, our choice to rebel against God, to turn away from God and from His ways, lies at the heart of the conflict and struggle, the suffering and the pain that are part and parcel of life in our world. But I also believe that there's a sense in which, as a body, we could add our signatures together to the bottom of that page, in the sense that As the church, we do, I believe, bear a particular and significant share of responsibility in relation to where our world, where our society is at in the here and now. In in what sense? Well, that's what we're going to try and uncover as we look this morning at this famous verse. 2 Chronicles 7.13, our verse for 2017. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I think the the first important thing we have to understand here is the situation. The situation and the, the situation here in, in Second Chronicles is that, that this was the time when the prosperity, when the power and the influence of Israel had reached its greatest heights. With the symbolic peak of all this being the, the newly finished completion of the temple under Solomon. National pride in Israel then was running high. But it was then during the the dedication of the temple that God gave to them a warning. That when I hold back the rain, when I send locusts 
to eat your crops, when plague devastates the nation, then remember. When all the things that in your human pride now you're rejoicing and putting your trust in, remember when disaster strikes that this is what needs to happen. Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, disaster did strike the nation. As first the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians and then later Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. But you see, I believe the, the seeds of all these things, though, were planted in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the people of Israel there demanded of Samuel that they might have a king like the other nations. 1 Samuel 8 verse 5, they, they said to Samuel, You are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now on the surface, you can understand why the people of Israel made this demand. Because they'd been living, you see, under a, a system of judges. Judges who were supposed to lead the nation under God. But you see, they'd had corrupt judges who'd led the nation badly. They did judges who'd lined their own pockets at the people's expense. They had a problem then, but the issue is how they dealt with it. And that instead of dealing with these corrupt judges, they instead changed their whole system of government. You see, they decided that they wanted to be like the world around them. That they wanted a human king. But you see, in so doing, they rejected God as their king. And God knew what they were doing and knew what this would lead to. First Samuel 8, 7-9, we read, And the Lord told Samuel, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected as their king, but me, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Now you see, it's this. It's this seed planted here in 1 Samuel with the rejection of the nation of God as their king. It's this that's about to come to fruition in 2 Chronicles 7 with disaster about to hit the nation leading finally to their subjection to foreign powers. That was their situation then. What's our situation What's our situation today? Still at the beginning of 2017. Well, I'm not going to through, go through statistics or stories. You've heard plenty of them as we've looked at the Ten Commandments. But certainly, certainly, we know that we have reached the place where as a nation, we have rejected God 
as king. In the sense of God, of his word, having any kind of authority in this land. Never mind absolute authority anymore. You see, our laws were based on a biblical foundation from the perspective of a biblical worldview. But now, piece by piece, that foundation is being pulled to pieces and thrown to the side. So the whole ethical and moral framework of our society now is being turned upside down. Things that once were wrong are now right. Opinions that were once mainstream are now seen as politically incorrect. We may now have already reached the point, but if not, it seems to me inevitable that we soon will, that to teach what the Bible says will put us at odds with the law of the land. You see, God is no longer in any sense in authority in our nation. Politicians are no longer implementing morality and ethics. They are deciding it. The media is no longer commenting on lifestyle and morality. They're fashioning and forming it. To the extent that many Christians in our society, very much like those Israelites who ended up in exile in Babylon, feel as if we are like them. Psalm 137 verse 4, as if we are strangers in a foreign land. And I have to say that we bear some level of responsibility for this. And that we haven't been, by the way that we've lived, the kind of influence we should have been. We haven't been always the kind of salt and light God calls his people to be. Nor have we been his prophetic voice in the way that he wants his people again to be. Speaking out gently, yes, and lovingly, but also clearly and firmly against the growing tide of sin that's engulfing our nation. Yes, we do bear part of the responsibility for the situation that as a society we find ourselves in today. That's the situation. Let's move on to look at the solution. The solution. And here we come to what I think is an incredible, awe-inspiring truth. That while we do bear part of the responsibility for the situation our society is in, however, we are the solution. We are, in the sense that we are the key. The church is the key to a turnaround again in our society. I mean, listen again to what it says in verse 14. If my people. It starts with God's people. So what do we have to do? What do we have to have in place in our lives to set the scene for God to move when he wills in his Sovereign power to bring our nation back to him. Well, what we're we're told here is that this all begins with humility. With humility. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Now, I think we have to begin here by acknowledging that humility, true humility, is not a common human trait. We can do false humility, but not that many people are truly humble. I think one of the great examples of false humility is found in 
in Dickens' book, famous book, David Copperfield, in the character Uriah Heep. And I well remember to this day watching a BBC adaptation of this in my early teens. And every time Uriah Heep was in company, he was always bowing and scraping. I'm your humble servant, he said, your humble servant, sir. And what stood out was that every time that he shook David Copperfield's hand, David Copperfield discreetly wiped his hand on the back of his trousers, emphasizing that the heap was, was greasy and slimy and duplicitous, as was later shown when he actually proved to be bitter and resentful and power-hungry. But how does true humility, though, come about? What can we do? What do we have to do to become truly humble? Well, of the insight I found in the, I found in the life of the American president, Theodore Roosevelt. He was president of America right at the beginning of the, the 20th century. And he was a great lover of the outdoors. And it's been reported that that when he entertained diplomatic guests at the, the White House, that he was fond of taking them, uh, at the end of the day, out onto the great back lawn there. And as he stood gazing up uh, at the heavens, cast his eyes heavenwards, that they would stand with him and look. Now you see, in those days, the skies weren't dimmed by, by city lights as they are today. And that magnificent display of God's brilliant creation would it again and again inevitably overwhelm those who looked. And after a little while, looking up to the heavens, Roosevelt would bring things to a conclusion. Gentlemen, I believe we are small enough now. Let's go to bed. You see... That's where true humility begins. When we set ourselves in the context of God. In the context of the greatness of God. And so acknowledge our human weakness and frailty. Our dependence on Him. And our need then to live a life of obedience to Him. You see, this is actually a wonderfully liberating place to be in. Because you're no longer then comparing yourself to other people. You're no longer competing against other people. You're no longer trying to live up to other people's expectations of you. You're no longer driven through life by those kind of negative forces. So becoming either proud, thinking yourself above others when we think we're achieving in relation to them. Or angry and bitter and resentful as we view ourselves as in some way failing that test of comparison to others. No, but true humility, as we view ourselves in the context of God, of our relationship with God, that sets us free from all of this. But, but let me be clear here. This kind of humility isn't about running ourselves down. It isn't about refusing to admit that we've got gifts and talents and abilities. It's not that. Now, what this is about is about setting ourselves in a God context. In the context of God's greatness and of his purposes for our lives. 
which brings about, I believe, an honest sense of self-awareness about ourselves and about the part that we can play in his purposes. And all of this in relation to God, without any need to compare ourselves against or compete with others. Now, I'll leave you to do that with regard to yourself at the individual level. But what about Hamilton Baptist Church as a body? As a church family, looking at us together in that context, the context of God and of God's purposes for his church, being humbled by that, what kind of truly humble self-assessment would that lead to? Well, I'm sure we've all got our, our views. But just to say, for me, there's a lot that I think that's good about this church. We have a number of strength. I believe we have. This is a warm and friendly church. It's a very caring church. And people here also care about the truth and they want to live a life that is worthy of Jesus. And we've got people with gifts and talents who are tremendously committed to the work that goes on and that they're involved in here. We've got great worship and we've got good numbers at most of our services, which is an encouragement, I know, to us all. And I could go on, but let me share what I see as two areas of weakness that I believe that an honest and humble self-assessment leads me to. First, I don't think we are as evangelistic, we are as mission-minded as we could be and should be. Now, probably there are many reasons for that. Perhaps the fact that we've got good numbers here on a Sunday. Perhaps the fact that there are new people who, who come around. Perhaps that, that brings with it the temptation to, to become complacent. And you see, if we look at ourselves in comparison to many other churches, that's understandable. Because in what are difficult days for the church in this country today, with a strong core here, we are, in that regard, doing relatively well. But you see, humility, godly humility, calls us not to measure ourselves against others, but rather to measure ourselves against God and God's purposes. And you see, our God is a God of evangelism. Our God is a God of mission. He wants people to hear the gospel. He wants people to be saved from judgment and hell. So if we are not seeing people saved then, then I believe that no matter what's good, that that points to the fact that there's something wrong. And what we need to do is to ask God to show us what is wrong. To ask him to deliver us from the temptation to complacency and to fire us up again with passion, real passion, passion for him, passion for the gospel, and passion for the lost. The lost who you see, despite how comfortable and contented they might now seem to us, are actually not okay. They might have a lot in this world, but without Jesus Christ, they are heading for hell. The second area of weakness that a humble self-assessment leads me to about Hamilton Baptist Church is in regard to prayer, to our life of prayer. Interestingly though, prayer is also the second part of the solution to the situation that the people of Israel here are about to find themselves in. 
And what the author of, of Chronicles suggests to them is, is that, that prayer is vital, isn't it? He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and pray. Well, let's try and pull all this together. So I say our prayer life as a church concerns me. However, I know that we have some great praying people in this church. And I've been to a number of prayer meetings in my time here that have been a great encouragement to me, and they really have. But what concerns me isn't so much what goes on at our prayer meetings. Though at times there are elements I worry a little bit about, things that are missing or underemphasized that, that concern me. But, but what actually gets to me sometimes is that I feel there should be more people at these meetings. More people who are there, not because they feel they're obliged to be there, that was the, the old days, but who are there because they actually want to be there. So why don't people want to be there? Well, I, I find that, that I understand this better when I set it side by side with why the chronicler here saw prayer as part of the solution to the problem his people were about to face. But before we go into that, let me just remind you very briefly from the series on prayer that I shared with you some time ago now, what I see as the biblical understanding of the basis of prayer. And that is that prayer is not about us getting God to do our will. Rather, what prayer is about is it's about us in the context of a growing relationship with God in which God's word and obedience to God's word and communication with God in prayer are integral. It's about us growing more and more into an understanding of the mind and will of God, what God wants, and then it's about us beseeching God. It's about us praying that will, God's will, into action. You see, prayer is actually about as far away from us getting God to do what we want as you could possibly imagine. And it's, it's set into this kind of background that we understand famous verses like John 14, 14, where Jesus says, You ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And you see, in my name there is the vital phrase. If you take that out, this is a blank check. But by including that, that phrase, Jesus makes it very clear what true prayer is about. It's about seeking to pray in accord with the name of Christ. That is with the character of Christ. It's about seeking to pray prayers that reflect the mind and the will of Jesus Christ. Now with that background, with that understanding in mind... Listen again to 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Now, Now remember, this call to prayer is in the context of national disaster. So this isn't primarily about, about personal, intimate prayers. This isn't primarily about, about little prayers that, that focus on the, the finer details of my life or your life. There is a place for those kind of prayers. But when God's people here are called to get serious about prayer, 
This isn't the kind of prayer they're being called to. No, they are called here to life-changing, to society-transforming prayer. They are called to pray that their nation will be turned back from the edge of disaster, from sinful, disastrous rebellion against God, and be prayed back into the blessing that comes from living in right relationship with God. God's God's people then here are being called to pray big. They're being called to pray big prayers. I wonder, does that shed light maybe on at least one reason why people sometimes don't feel motivated to come and pray? For you know, if you look at the early church of Acts, when the church there gathered together as a body to pray, this usually seemed to be in the context of a crisis of some kind. A regular weekly prayer meeting. You don't actually find that prescribed in the New Testament. Now, I'm not against having a weekly prayer meeting. I think that's a fairly natural development with potential for great benefits. But I do want to say, it does seem to me that if a prayer meeting becomes routine, if a prayer meeting becomes mainly introverted in nature, if it's consisting mainly in prayer that's about us looking within, about our life situation, then I have to say I do think there is a problem there. I'm not convinced that that is primarily what a church meeting should be about. Of course, we should pray for one another, maybe more at the prayer meeting. We should be given information we can take that will help us to pray for one another. But primarily, I believe our prayer meeting should be about big prayer. It should be about life transforming, society transforming prayer. That's needed more so today, I believe, than at any other point in my life and ministry. Given the world situation and where we are as a nation. Now I wonder, if that was our focus more and more in our prayer meeting. Praying for God to move in power in our lives, in our town, in our community, in our world. Would that motivate more people to pray? I want to say I hope so. But no matter what, I do believe that this is the way that more and more we need to be praying today. Okay, well let's move on to the third and final part of the solution and it is repentance. Repentance. Again, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, as most, if not all of us here know, repentance is fundamentally about us turning away from the direction we've been going in to instead go in God's way. What does this mean for us then? In the context of the humble self-assessment we've been talking about, in the light of God's character and purposes, in the light of the dire world and national situation we find ourselves in. Does this mean facing up perhaps to the fact that we've maybe become 
complacent. We've just got to that place where we've jogged along as we've always done, rather than really actively seeking to align our lives personally as a church with what God wants us to be, what God wants us to be as a church, what God wants us to be, and then going on and do it. Have we perhaps failed to see just how serious the world and natural national situation actually is? Have we failed to see, failed to acknowledge that we bear part of the responsibility for this and that we are the key, we're the key to its solution? Is God calling us in this sense then to repent? Well, you've got to answer this question for yourself. But let me tell you, I know he's calling me to repent because every time I preach, I preach to myself as much to you. And that's certainly the case as I share what I'm sharing with you now. But here's the good news that we take into this new year. And it's still a new year for me. What we're told here in this verse is that if we get down to it and actually seek God in this way, If we actually do it, if we come to him in prayer, humbled and repentant, then it tells us God will hear and God will respond and bring blessing. Maybe not always in the way we want, maybe not always at the time we want. But I want to say again, remember, prayer is about us finding God's will rather than us forcing God to do our will. But God will hear. And God will respond because that's what God promises. Verse 14, again, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear and will heal their land. I want to say, let's come to God then. Repentant, humbly, And really prayerfully in this year 2017 that we might play our little part in the beginning of a great move of God. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to come beneath the authority of your word and we just want to ask again that that each one of us will take from that word what you by your spirit are saying to us. Lord, we, we just pray that our desire will be to bring our lives in conformity to your word, not just to, to live the way that we live, not just to live the way the world around us or church around us lives, but, Father, to really ask, what's God asking today? What do we need to be? What shape do we need to get our lives into to be that people God calls us to be? Father, speak to us as your people this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.